Hello and welcome to Nightlight. Daniel chapter 12 verse 10 says, Many shall be purified or purify themselves and make themselves white and be refined, but the wicked shall do wickedly. And none of the wicked shall understand, but the wise ones, the teachers, those who make others wise, shall understand. An alternate translation for the wicked are the lawless. This verse from the prophecy of Daniel reveals a scenario in the end of the age which draws a dividing line between three groups of people, the wicked who are set on propagating evil, the wise who understand what is going on, and the masses whom the wicked seek to seduce and control while the wise seek to teach and liberate. When we were together last time, we unpacked the behavior of people whom the Bible calls the wicked. We showed that though we are all, quote, wicked to some degree, there are those who have embraced wickedness as their reality. In open rebellion against God and his order, they intend to form their own disorder by attacking and destroying all God has established including the family, the church, sound business practices, art and education, and government. It seemed immediately after recording that message that a public demonstration of what we were describing began to unfold all across America. There are two levels of wickedness at work here. One is what you might call on the street level and is louder and more attention-getting. This level of evil is carried out by a mixed mass of badly parented, poorly educated, media-manipulated young hoodlums of various colors and backgrounds. Proverbs chapter 10 speaks of them when it says, It's a sport to a fool to do wickedness, but a man of understanding has wisdom. The Aramaic translation says, A moron in his play tears down much good, but a man of understanding rejoices in building up, or in other words, it's always easier to demolish than it is to build. Proverbs 11, verse 11 says, upright citizens bring the city into prosperity, but the mouth of the wicked tears it apart. The street thugs may or may not have sophisticated planning or forethought as much as they are just given over to mindless, selfish evil. That's why the Aramaic translation calls them morons. It's not a pejorative, it's a description. Moron, from the Greek word moros, means dull-witted. It was a term used in early psychological uh, textbooks to describe a person whose emotional level of behavior without proper training is between 7 and 10 years old. Any parent or grammar school teacher knows what children that age are capable of tearing apart if left to themselves with no adult wisdom informing them. Now this may parallel a group in the New Testament called the Scythians. You may tell from the way Paul words his reference to the Scythians that they were considered the bottom of the human barrel with regards to barbarism, violence, and lack of sheer human understanding of what is valuable. 
I refer to them here only to point out that every kind of human category of evil behavior is covered by the New Testament. So those who have watched in the newsreels and seen people pillaging and burning and raping and killing and destroying, this is not some new breed of human wrongdoers. It's not to focus on the level of human evil man can sink to, but it's to underscore that the cross reaches every person on every level. Listen to Paul's statement from the Amplified Version of Colossians chapter 3, verse 11. In this new creation, all distinctions vanish. There's no room for labeling people as Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarians or even Scythians. Not slave, not free, but Christ is all and in all. Our focus on this verse is obviously pertinent to the entire racial argument, removing any and all racial distinctions for all who are in Christ, but that's not the main reason for my bringing it in here. The main reason for now is that when we pray for all people, as we are commanded to do, we have to resist making categories of people, as if the ones who look and smell nice are in less need of the cross than the Scythian, the wildest, lowest barbarian. We all know this on some level. If we know Jesus, we know he is able and desires to save the the very worst. This brings to mind an old song from my boyhood that I'm thankful to remember now and then. It says, Come you sinners, lost and hopeless, Jesus' blood can make you free, for he saved the worst among you when he saved a wretch like me. And I know, yes, I know, Jesus' blood can make the vilest sinner clean. I was not yet familiar with just how bad I could be at the time I first heard that song. And to look at me back in those days, you would have probably thought, well, song lyrics are song lyrics, but that kid is not a wretch. You you would have been more accurate if you had added the word yet. He's not a wretch yet. But in potential, which I sadly lived down to in some degrees, those lyrics fit me. And I, I say that to remind us that we are all capable of all kinds of evil. So we must not judge When we pray for the Scythians, uh, tearing up our cities and roaming through the countryside doing all kinds of evil, we're, we're not in less need of the cross than they are. And they are not beyond the reach of the cross. They are not in greater need of mercy than all of us. So though we are wicked, and though some of them may be more wicked than others, obviously, They're not who I'm trying to help us focus in on in prayer when I refer to the wicked. I'm giving the wicked a capitalized definition beyond the street level wicked. So just so we have it clearly in our minds, who are these I'm referring to as the wicked with the capital W? Scripture seems to refer to both these types of wicked people, the street level, and those I'm about to focus on. Scripture does not make a specific category for them as being separate from each other, 
So I don't want to go too far in making that category either. After all, it's the enemy of mankind that seeks to divide us and make us into categories. It's interesting to note Revelation 12.10 refers to Satan as the accuser. And the word in Greek there is where we get our English word categorize. When we put people into our categories, we are putting them in a place where we think we can then judge them and accuse them by that category that we have placed them in. And it's uh, at its simple level, it's a reasonable thing to speak of categories of people or things because that's just a practical way of organizing our thoughts. But at a spiritual level, if we are not careful, we can be- it can become an act of devilish judgmentalism related to making divisions for the purpose of conquest, exactly what we are seeing occur right now in this country. It's clearly the doctrine of satanic communism to divide and conquer. The word diabolos, where we get our English words devil and diabolical, come from the Greek root, which speaks of division for the purpose of overthrow. And any novice who has ever read the foundational doctrines of Marxism-Communism understands the plots and schemes of infiltrating a culture with every sort of division in order to infect it with a cancerous viral division of hatred, race against race, ethnic group against ethnic group. See Matthew chapter 24, where you see the phrase, nation shall rise against nation. That word nation there is ethnos, ethnic group. Gender against gender economic and class warfare, confusion of sexuality and sexual identity, Uh, all that we now see was by design and has been planned and carried out step by step for the very purpose of dividing in order to destroy. So we as believers in Jesus are warned not to do that to anyone, that is not to put them into categories for the purpose of judgmental hatred of them, even Scythians. So no one I'm trying to identify here is a hopeless category. There is no human being, no matter how wicked, who is beyond the reach of the cross. Now, if we don't know that, we don't know the basic foundational truth of what Jesus did and who he is. We need to get this clearly and firmly in our thinking in order for our prayers to be powerful and effective Because we're going to pray for the wicked. Here's the basic premise for for effectively praying for not merely the street-level wicked, but for, for lack of a better term, maybe, the higher puppet master type wicked who knows exactly what they are aiming at. It's a simple but profound aim that we're after. We pray for the overthrow and destruction of the wicked so that we can pray for their redemption. For the Scythians, the street brawlers, 
We pray for their conviction of sin, for circumstances in their lives to be set in motion in order for them to come to the end of themselves, which may mean getting arrested, prosecuted, and punished. How many times have I been told by prisoners or former prisoners, quote, this jail saved me from myself and helped me come to God. So we pray not only that they hear the gospel, but we pray for the strengthening of the power of just government to extend the rule of law where it is needed and for the unjust law enforcer who has misused that authority to also be brought to justice under the same power of godly law so that they will all hear the gospel and for the laborers to be set in their world who will reach them with the gospel. Far too few workers have been in this field. Every local church should have some kind of ministry to the streets and to the jails and prisons. I believe that will be rising more now as the church has become awakened as to uh, what, what we can disintegrate into when we just sit back and wait for the rapture. But for the ones that are on a higher level of wickedness, those I spell with a capital W, those who do know exactly what they are doing and who celebrate it, meditate on how to increase it, and who are arrogantly, rebelliously focused on accomplishing its evil victories. Scripture seems to offer a different blueprint for them. And those who not, do not appear on the streets maiming and destroying, but are in richly furnished back rooms of corporations and government offices and movie and music studios and publishing, house, publishing houses and on and on, how do we pray for them? The scripture shows the connection between having a wicked heart, one that is set on doing evil, as also, obviously, having a heart that is set against wisdom. Often, when Scripture refers to the wicked, it draws a direct link to the fool who hates wisdom. Again, we can't make too much of this difference, but there seems to be a subtle but strong difference between the fool who has no wisdom because he has ignored it because of his own stupidity and rejects all offer of truth what Proverbs refers to over and over as the fool. On the other hand, those who have set themselves in some kind of willful alliance with evil in order to overthrow goodness and destroy all that God has ordained. There is some difference between one who has no wisdom from lack of engagement with it and one who hates wisdom. The first type are maybe just carnal, sinful, foolish dupes. But this second type, and I'm trying to avoid speaking in categories, seems to have made a willful pledge to evil as to a power. Whether they are outright Satanists practicing occult evil on purpose or just self-proclaimed atheists who deny supernatural power, yet who operate as if the satanic is the only true power, and calling it humanism, they're both the same. The fool has said in his heart, no God. We inaccurately translate that statement from Psalm 14, verse 1, 
as if it's a philosophical argument in the mouth of the God denier, as if it is his mind that is at odds with the idea of there being a God. For this is where we as a culture think that we're operating. But that's a lie. The scripture is far more accurate in how it addresses the fool in this verse because it actually is saying the fool has said not in his head but in his heart and not there is no God but no to God. So either type of wicked practitioner, the humanist atheist or the occult Satanist, they work every, uh, they work very well together for they have the same heart and the same aim which is to overthrow God. The description of Satan in Ezekiel chapter 28 verse 12 says that he was full of wisdom but then in verse 17 it says he corrupted his wisdom or one translation says he rebuked wisdom. Though this can apply to both kinds of wickedness it is especially more diabolical in the cool, calm, collected, highbrow manipulator who's purposefully set evil in motion in culture. The George Soroses, and I could name others. These are the politicians and the business leaders and the media talking heads and the puppet masters of Hollywood and the entertainment industry, as well as the moguls and the Frankensteinian science researchers who think there is no God to answer to and who can therefore manipulate creation for their own twisted purposes. After all, it's for the good of science, they say. They are described in Revelation 18 as the rulers of something called Mystery Babylon, a symbol for the entire system of worldwide evil. It's called, quote, a habitation of demons and a holding place of every foul spirit, and a cage for every evil, unclean, and hateful bird. They have waxed rich through the abundance of their merchandise, for by their works of witchcraft they have deceived all nations. Malachi chapter 4 verse 1 says, There's a day coming that shall burn like an oven, and all the proud and all that practice wickedness shall burn them up and leave neither root nor branch. Psalm 37 verse 10 says, For just a little while, and the wicked shall not be. You shall search for them, but they shall not exist. But the meek shall inherit the earth. That's how all this winds up, to shorten it it a bit. But how do we interpret Scripture with Scripture? We've already stated that from several places, God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but wants them to repent. We do not know who will or who won't ultimately repent, but we are clearly told to pray for all people because God wants all people saved. It's not enough to just flippantly say, as I have sadly so often heard in some churches, that We already know most people will be lost, or some such shallow religious response as that. Thinking like that makes an already difficult task, that of doing the hard work of intercession, even easier to turn away from and avoid. After all, they're all the wicked, and they are predestined to be lost, so forget them. 
No, we don't know any of that. That's only some folks' interpretation of verses that seem to suggest that. But if that interpretation is true on that level, then they're fully contradicting, contradicting the ones we've already cited. So the wisest way to approach this is from the standpoint of the cross. Jesus said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men to me. The Greek word actually is drag. I'll drag all men to me. Every knee shall bow of things in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus is the propitiation of our sins, but not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. These and many other statements of Scripture point to the utter destruction of evil out of the universe. It's very helpful to our prayer power to keep that in focus as we pray for the wicked. We obviously cannot say a few simplistic prayers and claim a few verses and then get back and wait for the end to come as if there are no battles to wage and no, no patterns of evil to discern and untangle. We are to pray as the Holy Spirit guides us. And though obviously only God is able to see and understand the various entangled strands of, collect, of, of connections and outcomes of the whole human race, he has ordained that by the church, that is, his people, who are kings and priests, we are to partner with him under the supernatural empowering of the Holy Spirit to bind and loose, to untangle and reconnect, to pull down strongholds and to establish kingdom purposes and to break bands of wickedness and undo heavy burdens, to cooperate with the angelic warriors as our prayers to God open ways for them to accomplish tasks that seem to not be accomplished unless we pray. If we believe that, if we even had a half an inkling that that is a reality, we would certainly pray. This will take listening, being attentive, being willing to be available to engage with the Holy Spirit in whatever form of battle he calls us to. But I'm personally convinced that I have been given the commission of interceding for some who we all might believe are among the wicked. And I believe that even if it takes a lifetime, they will be delivered. But even if they're not delivered in a way that I will ever live to see, I believe my prayers will work for their good. And the first good that my prayers will work on their behalf is for their utter overthrow, the collapse of all their intentions, the loss of their platform, the destruction of their liberty to do evil, and the crushing of their darkest hopes. And the more I pray for them, the more I care for them as persons. They're ceasing to be two-dimensional abstract shadows in my mind, and at times I'm able to see who they really are and who they were before they embraced and were embraced by darkness. And at times, a great compassion rises in me for them, just as at times a great holy rage rises in me against what they stand for. In this way, I'm finding it feasible to see both the overthrow of them and the extension of mercy to them. I leave it to God who alone has the wisdom and power and goodness of judgment. 
but I cooperate with my Father in his enterprise of bringing to an end all evil in the earth and of preparing the earth for his return. When the last enemy shall be destroyed, which is death, when he will put down all principalities and powers and finally turn the kingdom over to his Father so that God may be all in all. 1 Corinthians fifteen, twenty-four through 28 We do not pray out of fear of the wicked. Perfect love casts out all fear. 1 John four eighteen. We also don't pray out of anger, though that's very tempting to do. This is exactly why Paul specifies in 1 Timothy 2.8 that we are to pray for all people without wrath or conflict. King James' translation says without wrath or doubting. But doubting is the result of an inner conflict. Paul is really more specific when he says, learn to pray without being angry and without having inner conflicts over what you're praying for. Like, don't pray, Lord, save them, but let me Knock the hell out of them before you save them. That kind of conflict. We are to pray from the cross with the heart of God at our center. For the wicked are unalterably headed for destruction. They're absolutely under the sway of the law of sin and death. That's not up for discussion. And though we can find certain passages that seem to imply that God celebrates their demise... That's not the final and full revelation of the heart of God. We've already talked about that in our previous session. The full and final and complete revelation of God's heart is the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And if we stand in that place, we pray for the wickedness of the wicked to be destroyed so that they can be destroyed in one of two ways. Either by falling on the rock or by the rock falling on them. Matthew 21, verse 44, Jesus said, Whoever shall fall on this stone shall be broken. Speaking of repentance. But on whoever it shall fall, it will grind him to powder. But we've been told already how to pray. Pray that they will fall on the rock, and the rock won't fall on them. That they will turn, repent, and be restored to their true selves in Christ. I hope you can see that in our aim of this study, it's not merely to throw rocks at the wicked. I mean, what what revelation is in that? What kingdom purpose is in that? We don't need to spell out their wickedness. It's all too obvious, and you know it all without my telling you. We are only identifying them in order to be able to clearly understand who it is we're aiming at and what it is we're aiming to accomplish regarding them. But the title of this message is How to Pray for the Wicked. But how do we not pray with anger in the face of certain evils? I mean, I referenced Psalm 37 a few minutes ago. It'll be good for you to read the entire psalm regarding the eventual overthrow of the wicked. But there's one part of that psalm I especially want us to focus on here because I need to focus on it. And that's Psalm 37, verses 7, 8, and 9. Rest, or the Hebrew says, be silent before the Lord. Rest and wait for the Lord. 
Fret not yourselves. The word fret here means to rub or irritate or chafe. Fret not yourselves because of one who prospers in his evil, because of the one who brings wicked devices to pass. Notice these wicked are ones who have big evil plans that they have devised. They were plotted and charted. And steps were taken to bring those those plots to pass, like so much that we are seeing hatched in action today by evil, whether government, business, or various groups on the streets. Cease from anger and forsake wrath. In other words, let go of your anger and do not do not make plans ahead of time to allow yourself. To heat up with rage. That's the Hebrew idea here. Do not irritate yourself in any way to move yourself towards responding in an evil way yourself. Clay, I have to read this pretty often. Maybe most men and a good number of women do too. Maybe we have to do the same thing. It's not that there's no place for anger ever. In fact, when it comes to most of the actions of the wicked, if you're not angry, you're not a decent person. To not be enraged at certain evils is an evil itself. The only problem, though, is that none of us can wisely handle our anger. We're not wise enough or good enough to wield that weapon accurately. Even more importantly, if we're trying to wield our own weapon of rage at evil, we will not be sensitive to the far greater wisdom and far more accurate firepower of the spiritual weapons at our disposal in the Holy Spirit. I've been convicted by the Lord on more than one occasion that it was not so much that my anger was wrong, but that it was wasted energy. The power may have been accurate, but the aim was not. Good martial arts teachers will tell you anger throws you off balance. It makes you sloppy, opens you up to defeat. The best attack against evil is to land a blow against it that will overthrow it and defeat it, not you. Not to just flail around till you feel better because you've vented your anger. Let me let me try to illustrate this by telling you a story from my own experience. I watched the West over the past two decades increasingly embrace the lies of the left, some even in the name of Christ. Little by little, I've watched many churches exchange the gospel of the cross for a false message of humanistic so-called social justice. What we're seeing on the streets and infecting nearly every stratum of business and entertainment is the culmination of many years of slow, steady indoctrination by Marxist, God-hating, family-hating, America-hating, evil-loving people. Though it is not confined to only one party, the Democratic Party is uh, fully embracing and pushing all the evils of its agenda, and they made huge progress in doing so when Bill Clinton was elected president. 
On the back of his elected position, Hillary climbed to more and more power until we were finally confronted with her run for president. I didn't realize that there was incrementally growing inside me another sort of danger. Little by little, I developed a personal hatred for not only the Clintons, but for all who identified with them or with the left. I began to see certain people as a category. In the very way I warned us that we are not to do to, to people, period. I was not conscious of it, taking more and more space inside me. Uh, but Mary was conscious of what was happening to me and often wisely and gently tried to warn me. It's subtle, usually. It begins with a love for goodness and truth, but then takes a slight turn towards self-righteous identification with goodness and truth in a way that begins to excuse our own sins because we are comparing ourselves with those real sinners. Then it begins... Daily irritations with periodic explosions of anger over some high-profile news report. That then becomes added to an ever-increasing stack of unreconciled evils because there is so much crookedness in the courts and so much injustice in the law system. But it wasn't long until I was so covered up by the stack of enraging wrongdoing by the left that I lost sight of my own needs and my own lack of holiness. And I was not making any difference for good against evil. I was simply allowing the very evil I hated to infiltrate me, disguised as righteous anger. At times, cussing would pour out of me at some new offense perpetrated by some politician, and there was always a great, never-ending supply of such stuff every day. I would feel Mary's sorrow at how I was responding. I said to her once, cussing them is just an accurate description of them. I'm not cussing. I was slowly being changed from one level of rage to another, headed in a downward direction away from Jesus' character and wisdom, all the while feeling myself to be standing for truth against lies. Now, you may have one of two responses to this. You may feel shock and shame at me for my anger, or you may feel a deep empathy for that anger because you feel it too. Now, either of those responses has some problems. The first one may be a problem because you're not letting yourself see evil for what it truly is and therefore have kind of a Pollyanna-like avoidance of facing things. But I found if you're in the other kind of anger, you tend to accuse everyone who's not as angry as you are of being Pollyanna. And Sometimes I would actually imply that to the person I love most in the whole world who loves me and knows me and prays for me. Like we said a few minutes ago, there are some things that are so horrendously wrong that if your response to them has no anger, something is morally wrong with you. 
be angry, but sin not. Now, we rightly quote that statement from the New Testament. We're mostly focusing on the sin not part. There must be times when we allow for and are even focused on the be angry part, too. But it must be faced over and over and over because we never seem to get it that our anger left to itself will not only not work the righteousness of God, but will work against it. And worse, will end up dishonoring God in the process by claiming to be acting in his name. And that brings us to the next possible reaction to my confession of my sin of seething, erupting rage, and that is, if you are cheering me on inside at the thought of my cussing this or that politician, you are just in my mess with me, and we're both drowning in it. We are neither one hitting our aimed at target with any true effectiveness, and we are deteriorating ourselves in the process. Now, picture this. You're aiming your gun at a dangerous intruder, but when you pull the trigger, the trigger completely uh, is completely, the, the, the danger is completely unhindered, but you are shooting yourself. But you keep pulling the trigger over and over till you are dead, and the intruder is then free to go on destroying. That's what I was doing. Titus chapter 3, verse 2 and 3 says, Clearly, I should write it in big letters on my wall in my study. Speak evil of no man or woman. For we ourselves were at one time foolish, disobedient, and deceived, serving diverse lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating. In some ways, that could be my life verse. I came to understand that unless and until I got this straight in me, I would not only be powerless for good, I would be subject more and more to bad. And it was about this time that we were coming upon the presidential election of 2016. I pulled away from all news and even conversations about the political realm and set myself before the Lord. I told this story in a previous message, but it needs to be repeated here. The days leading up to the election, I had three consecutive experiences that were obvious to me as being all connected. The first was four days before election day. I woke up before dawn with a deep sadness in me over Hillary Clinton. I was grieving for her as a person, not as a public figure or a candidate, or as a wielder of evil machinations, which she is, but I was grieving for her as a human being. And the grief for her was very personal, as if my sorrow was from a sense of personal loss related to her. This sorrow was obviously beyond me. But because I had repented of my own judgment of her, I was now seemingly in a place of being able to share God's heart for her and to see her clearly. And I prayed for her true self to be restored. 
On the night before the election, I had another profound experience with regarding her. I woke again before daylight, this time fully aware that she would lose the election. I left the bedroom so as not to disturb Mary and went to my study. I found myself praying in a strong, angry tongue. But along with that, I was almost compelled to give myself to motions I did not have any conscious understanding of. I was not out of control. I could have stopped, but I did not want to hinder whatever was happening. I was reaching up above my head as if into the space above me and grabbing hold of something, forcefully forcefully ripping it down over and over and over and with each movement then stomping the whatever it was into the floor under my feet. This went on for several prolonged minutes. Then it suddenly lifted and I was physically exhausted and began to weep like a child. I immediately became aware of several things. First, I had been engaged in some sort of warfare in the spirit realm related to the coming election. That powers above, which were set for evil, had been torn down and placed under the feet of the people of God. Second, these dark powers had been set to place Hillary in position to carry forward their demonic agenda for this nation. And third, with their overthrow, she simply would not be elected. I was aware in this moment that there was a direct relationship between my grief for her the night before, my repentance for my human anger at her and at all leftists, and my sensitivity to the Holy Spirit in intercession. Now please don't think by this story that the battle in me to keep this place was a done deal and that ever since I've just been wonderful. I've had to almost daily choose to resist the human tendency toward fretting, smoldering, seething anger that would sometimes erupt like a volcano and give the irritation of negative circumstances uh, a much larger place than what the Holy Spirit was saying to me. But I've grown in freedom and discernment as I have kept all this before the Lord. I offer this as an illustration of several important points which I hope are now obvious and don't need any more explanation. That, but, but, but that was then. That was, that was 2016. Where are we now? Let me bring this message to a close with this. What happened in 2016 was an obvious divine intervention. I'm quite sure there were many other people praying other than me. The plans of evil were powerfully denied, but they have only heightened in intensity ever since. For one of the characteristics of the wicked is that they do not ever cease in their focused intention to destroy all that is good, as I have too often found myself quoting from the words of William Butler Yeats, everywhere the ceremony of innocence is drowned. The best lack all conviction, while the worst are full of passionate intensity. Surely some revelation is at hand. Yes, some revelation is at hand.
things are heading to an eventual intrepid crescendoing event. And it would be certainly a terrible climax for all who love goodness and right if the passionate intensity of the wicked was not being finally met and resisted by a greater passionate intensity of God's people. But it is being challenged and shoved back by a fully awakened kingdom of priests. And we are no longer lacking in all conviction, but we are filled with holy love for the good and holy rage at the evil. We are taking our place in battle, in prayer, and in righteous action. We are empowered by a holy love that embraces the good so that it automatically hates the evil that would destroy that good. We do not battle out of hatred for what is before us, but out of love for what is behind us. So we do not waste our energy in merely human anger or lose our aim due to misguided rage. We wait for the commands of our King and then move with His Holy Spirit's direction against evil for the sake of salvaging people, even the wicked. We pray for the ultimate total overthrow of the wicked for the sake of the salvation and restoration of all human beings taken captive by evil. Now, as we come to a close in this message, I want to show you a few scriptures that might be helpful to you when you don't know how to pray and you, uh, you don't feel like praying, there's there's times when I, I know how to pray, I just don't feel like engaging it. it. It takes energy. It takes emotional energy. It's hard to do. It's not like worship or sitting in the presence of the Lord or just enjoying fellowship with the Lord. This is battle. It requires exertion. It requires something of you. It requires energy. You, you remember that, that strange story when uh, the, the, the king went to Elijah uh, and Elijah was on his deathbed uh, and the king asked Elijah, are we going to win the battle? And Elijah tells him to take his arrows out of his scabbard and strike the ground uh, and he takes the arrows out and strikes the ground two or three times. And Elijah seems to get angry at him and said, Why didn't you strike the ground four times, five times? Then you would have won the battle. But instead, you only struck the ground a couple of times. Well, that's one of those weird prophetic stories of the scriptures. That It's not weird if you understand how the prophetic moves and how it operates. But all I'm saying is there's a time when your body has to get involved. Like when I was reaching up and grabbing things and pulling them down and stomping them. Uh, I could have resisted those movements, but I would have been frustrated out of my mind. My body longed to cooperate with what uh, was coming out of my spirit through my mouth. And uh, all I'm saying is there, there are times when you have to make your body cooperate and you don't feel like it. You don't feel like praying. And in fact, I'll tell you, you won't feel like it at all because if, your whole, if the Holy Spirit is calling you to this kind of prayer, you will immediately get resistance in the spirit realm uh, that'll take on all kinds of strange forms. And I don't know how all that works, 
I don't know the geography of the invisible realm uh, to that detail, but I do know that sometimes uh, an atmosphere of uh, negativity will descend on me when I'm trying to pray, and it's not coming from me, and it's not coming from my family. It's not coming from any specific event. It's coming from the enemy in some form or other to keep me from praying. And that's that's the time when praise and clapping your hands and saying out loud the word of God is helpful. Well, I'm saying all that to say uh, one of the things that will really help you to move into this kind of prayer when it comes to praying for the wicked is to pray the scriptures, uh, particularly of course, the Psalms. Uh, and if you are so spiritually free that you are never uh, open to praying prayers that are pre-written, uh, therefore you don't believe in anything liturgical, so you won't pray anything that's written, uh, then get over that <clears throat> and push past that uh, small-mindedness and recognize that the Scriptures have been given to us to help us in lots of ways, but one of the ways that it's meant to help us is in times like this that I'm describing. And when it comes to praying for the overthrow of the wicked, I'll just give you a few scriptures. Uh, You can find your own. You can look up your own. But here recently I was particularly been focused on Psalm 94, Of course, there's Psalm 91, there's Psalm 2, there's Psalm 109. We we may take a few minutes to look at Psalm 109 because it's a little hard to sort through. But Psalm 94, for instance, O Lord, God to whom vengeance belongs, O God to whom vengeance belongs, shine forth, lift up yourself, O judge of the earth. Render the reward that uh, belongs to the arrogant. Lift up yourself and judge the earth. Uh, Lord, how long will the wicked, how long will the wicked triumph? How long will they utter arrogant things and uh, all the workers of iniquity boast in their arrogance? Uh, They break in pieces the people, O Lord. They afflict your heritage. They slay the widow and the stranger and murder the fatherless. They say, the Lord shall not see, neither shall the God of Jacob give any regard to it. Understand, you foolish among the people, you fools, when will you be wise? He who planted the ear shall he not hear. He who created the eye shall he not see. He who chastises the nations shall he not correct He who teaches man knowledge, does he not know? The Lord knows the thoughts of man, that they are all vanity. Blessed is the man whom the Lord chastises. O Lord, uh, he teaches teaches him his law. And then it goes on down, you know, just continue to read there. But the verses that are calling for God to stand forth in judgment against the wicked and overthrow them, uh, those, you pray out loud. Pray them out loud. And there's lots of them in the Psalms. You just find them and do your own homework. 
Psalm 2, he who dwells in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord will have his enemies in derision. Why do the heathen rage and the wicked imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their bonds asunder and cast away their cords from us. But he who dwells in the heavens shall laugh at them. The Lord will have their, his enemies in derision. The whole, the whole chapter. Read it out loud. Uh, declare it. Don't just read it out loud. Declare it out loud. Some of you are going to have to push past being naturally quiet and naturally subdued and uh, get a little more Pentecostal in the way you uh, handle these things. Uh, I'll show you one more that I've been praying uh, for the wicked in government. Psalm 109. Now, Psalm 109 is a uh, not one of our favorite psalms, is it? But it, it, uh, when you read it, you'll know why I say that. Don't hold your peace, O God, of my praise. For the mouth of the wicked and the mouth of the deceitful are open against me. They've spoken against your people with a lying tongue. They compass us about with words of hatred uh, and uh, found against us uh, accusations without cause. Uh, but we give ourselves to prayer. Verse 5, uh, they've tried to reward us evil for good and hatred for love. Uh, we, and this is what we pray for them. We pray that uh, a wicked man would rule over them and that Satan would stand at their right hand. In other words, I pray that the, the wickedness that you've intended for us would be turned on you. I pray for instance, I pray that there would be confusion set loose in their camp, that their plans and plots would be become uh, utterly unfunctional and be put in disarray, that the wickedness in the hearts of those who are participating together would be no longer in unity, that they would not be in unity like those who built the Tower of Babel for whom they were all in one spirit so nothing could be withheld from them. I pray that they will get into disarray and disunity and that the wickedness and crookedness and jealousy and envy that they have for one another would take over and they would be dispersed in, uh, from, and, and thrown into disunity and chaos and disorder and uh, that what they plot and plan would come back on their own head. Uh, and then I go on down through Psalm 109, which says terrible things like, let his children be fatherless, let his wife be a widow. Well, I pray, let your, let your philosophical and political offspring be, be fatherless. Let your partnerships uh, disintegrate. Let your your disciples, those you have raised up to be your children. Let them not have anything to eat. Cut off their finances. Cut off their places of uh, uh, resource. Uh, I, I pray that uh, they will begin to extort one another. Uh, that uh, confusion will be set loose among them. Uh, then I pray uh, that uh, let uh, another one take their office. Let them lose their platform. Let another one take their office. Let someone else take the, their place. Uh, and you just go on and read through Psalm 109 and ask the Holy Spirit, what is the right way for me to pray in 
this situation with the battle that we're in today. Well, anyway, that's just a few examples. Uh, you just have to ask the Holy Spirit to help you find your own scriptures and learn to pray that way. But listen, uh, let's, let's pray now before we close here. Let's pray that, that, um, the Father will guide us into this, this battle in, in greater ways. Father, I pray for every man and woman in the sound of my voice. I pray for uh, every person who has been overwhelmed by all of the difficulties of these past few months and uh, they might, maybe they've allowed themselves to become exhausted by it. And I pray, Father, for a renewal of our spirit. I pray, Father, for a gift of battle. I pray, Father, that we will rally against the powers of darkness. We will not stand six feet away from people. We'll draw close to people and love people and care for people. And we will, uh, we will not be in fear of that which you've given us authority over. You've told us to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy. And uh, here we are, the people of God, running around like uh, like we're under the, the scourge of the devil. Well, the wicked flee when nobody's chasing them. But the righteous are as bold as a lion. So I pray, Father, for all the, the men and women in the sound of my voice, boys and girls, young people, that there would be an awakening, not of arrogance, that we would not go out in a spirit of self-righteous religious arrogance, but we would also not kowtow and bow and hunker down and act like we've got, like David Copperfield asking for, please sir, can I have some more? Asking for permission from evil, wicked government officials who are breaking the constitution and disregarding the authority of both God and man, uh, to propagate a falsehood. I pray, Father, that you will awaken your people. I pray for doctors who know medically that we're being lied to and know that a lot of things are being falsely presented, but they're afraid to stand up because they're, they're cowered by, uh, crooks who have taken over the medical hierarchy and by insurance crooks and by uh, large organizations and hospital crooks that are dominating and controlling good doctors with uh, uh, false information or commanding them to add to the numbers of uh, virus uh, deaths so they can pump the numbers up, so they can have something to give to the false news media, so they have something uh, to continue to feed people with that will scare them and keep them cowering and keep them afraid. We pray, Father, for all of that to be swept away by the light of your truth and your love, and your presence, and your power. And we pray, Father, that you will teach us how to pray for the overturning and casting down of the wicked so that we can also pray that while they're down and in their brokenness and in their shattered condition of shame and exposure, they will humble themselves and hopefully receive mercy and grace to be restored to their true self in Christ. We pray that in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ who has conquered death and in whose name we have power over all the power of the enemy. We thank you for it, Father. In his name, amen.